You are listening to the Left Right Forward Show with Ambassador Delano Lewis. Enjoy the show. Welcome back. This is Left Right Forward, and I'm your host, Ambassador Delano Lewis. We're going to turn the tables today and do something different. Uh, I'm going to be interviewed, and I'm going to have as the interviewer a very good friend and colleague who's been working with Left Right Forward, the operations manager at KRWG, uh, KC Counts. She's going to be the interviewer today. KC. Thank thank you so much for allowing me to do this. I'm, I've been listening as you've been entering some or interviewing some of your former colleagues. And as we entered this period of time in our history and we're watching the impeachment inquiry hearings as, as they can continued uh, in Washington, D.C., I was struck uh, by the stories of the ambassadors, the stories about the ambassadors, and to hear what an ambassador's viewpoint would be regarding all of this. So I want to dive into all of that. <laughs> okay. Thank you for doing that with us. Oh, I'm excited. Thank you. But let's start a little bit before. So for your audience who may not necessarily know your history, you've shared a lot of history uh, with some of your colleagues along the way. Uh, but tell us about how you found yourself in foreign service. Well, that's a very good question. I, I won't belabor it because it's kind of a long, convoluted story in some respects. But I'm a Kansan and graduated from the University of Kansas in political science and history and went on to Washburn School of Law in Topeka. And I always wanted to work in civil rights. And uh, so when I got out of law school, I had a chance to be appointed to as a lawyer with the Department of Justice. But I went into the criminal division, internal security division of justice, not in civil rights. It was only until I went with Equal Employment Opportunity Commission that I got into uh, civil rights. But I had a long career before I got to the Foreign Service. I was in five different agencies in the federal government, uh, including a couple of terms on Capitol Hill. And then I was in telecom for 21 years. Uh, but before that, I was with the Peace Corps. And uh, the Peace Corps in, excuse me, <coughs> in Nigeria and Uganda as Peace Corps staff. And that's where I really got the bug on the global interest and, and the, the world uh, as, as I was being confronted in, in those years. So later on, after uh, a stint, uh, as president of National Public Radio and then moving to New Mexico, I got a call from the Clinton White House. And that's how it all started when Vice President Gore called and asked, uh, said that the president, uh, President Clinton, would like to nominate me as U.S. ambassador to the Republic of South Africa. So I'd had some global experience with Peace Corps, but it was only until uh, the Clinton-Gore White House called about nominating me for an ambassadorship. Now, how, how big a check did you have to write to get that job? <laughs> That's a good question. You're, you're right on target in many respects. <laughs> uh, the U.S. Foreign Service is made up of two-thirds of career uh, ambassadors. And those are persons who take the Foreign Service exam, uh, become a Foreign Service officer, and work around the world. And if they have had a good career, their names get on a list after they become deputy chief of mission uh, in an embassy around the world. And once you're a DCM, you're eligible, at least, to be considered for a nomination for an ambassadorship. That's the career route. Now, sometimes that will take... upwards of uh, 20 to 25 years, I might say. Uh, And the other route, one-third of the ambassadors or what we call political appointees. And you're correct, most political appointees for ambassadorships work for a political party, give money to a political party, or both. Gordon Sondland was the name (laughs) I had in mind. Right. Uh, Being the ambassador to the EU. Correct. correct. And, mm-hmm. of course, some gripping testimony during the impeachment inquiry. What were some of the thoughts that went through your mind as you were listening to him tell that story? Oh, it, was a, it was fascinating. Uh, lots of thoughts went through my mind. And if you recall, I interviewed uh, Ambassador Vicki Huddleston, who was chief of the U.S. interest section in Cuba. And in that interview, toward the end of that interview, we talked about political appointees. And she said, you know, I have nothing against political appointees if they have some background and experience, like you, Delano. And so I said, well, thank you, uh, Ambassador. Uh, I did have some experience, and it appears as if 
Gordon Sondland had no foreign service experience, uh, and he gave lots of money to the uh, Trump inaugural committee and was rewarded with an ambassadorship to the European Union. So I was saying, okay, here's a political appointee who's now an ambassador. Um, he sounded articulate. He was a businessman. So I could, gave him the benefit of the doubt that uh, you could learn uh, what an ambassador does and you could figure out how to become the chief of mission and Rise make it work. Rise to the occasion, right? as they would say. But those, so my thoughts came, yes, he was, a, he was a, a cohort in many ways because he was a political appointee uh, as ambassador. Uh, but he did not appear to have uh, global experience. No, indeed. And was it shocking to you to see what he had to say uh, and how his testimony unfolded during the hearing? Well, it was shocking in many ways. And you know from from listening to many of my interviews, uh, I'm a lawyer by profession. Uh, I talk at home a lot about thinking like a lawyer. And so I'm very intrigued by listening to this from a, a, a legal point of view. And um, I thought that he had, Gordon Sondland, Ambassador Sondland, had retweeted or tried to review his first testimony uh, and add some things to it. And I think what happened when he gave his first testimony, he maybe had ignored some facts. And after he heard some other testimonies, he wanted to refresh his testimony. Uh, so I was curious now that he was going to be under oath and in public, how would he begin to deal with some of the irregularities that he might have uh, confronted? Everybody and, was in the loop. Yes. Everybody knew what was that going That was a surprise. And I think his lawyer, and this is my guess, I have no knowledge of this, first-hand knowledge. My guess was he had counsel, and the legal counsel said, you uh, may be heading toward a problem here if you, under oath, uh, uh, um, you know, have some inconsistencies here. You could end up like the president's last personal attorney. <laughs> exactly. Speaking of personal attorneys to the president, <laughs> would it be unusual? Did you have any of those show up during your time as an ambassador and country? Did I have any personal attorneys show up? <laughs> no, not. I must say I was a U.S. ambassador to South Africa and uh, the chief of mission there, and it was a very large embassy. Uh, I had a lot of... Uh, um, Heads of agencies reporting to me. I had uh, uh, military attaches, uh, people from agriculture, education, the FBI, CIA. All of those folks reported to me as the chief of mission, but they also reported to their agencies uh, back home. So I did not have any personal lawyers of, of Clinton uh, coming through South Africa or impacting foreign policy. So that's, that was certainly a little unusual. From my, from my vantage point. Are there any other examples you can think of where there was this kind of backdoor channel, as it's being called, uh, for foreign policy? Not at all. I had none of that uh, under my times uh, with Clinton Gore. And uh, as the U.S. ambassador and certainly as a political appointee, uh, I reported through the Secretary of State uh, to the President of the United States. So as a political appointee, you do have that inside relationship with the White House. Uh, you don't usually get that if you are a career foreign service officer who becomes who becomes an ambassador. However, there were no back channels. I had a direct channel to the White House. There was no other competing channel working on foreign policy uh, as it related to South Africa. And I definitely want to talk a lot more about your time in South Africa and, and what was happening while you were there. Right. But I want to move now to uh, the former ambassador to Ukraine, Marie Ivanovich. <laughs> now, would she be an example of someone who came up on the career side? Yes, very good example. Uh, very proud of her. She was very courageous. Uh, let me say at the outset, pres you serve at, whether you're a career or political appointee, you serve at the pleasure of the president. So President Trump had every right uh, to let Ambassador Yanovich go. Uh, but her concern was, why did he let me go? And uh, that was never clear. And she also said, why was I being smeared and why was my reputation being uh, uh, dispersed? And so that was her concern. But the fact is the president can let an ambassador go. Uh, but she felt that uh, this was very political. She felt that um, there were something things there were things going on with uh, the president's personal lawyer and others uh, had a, another foreign policy agenda. 
And her agenda was to support uh, the Ukrainians and be very much concerned about Russia and Russia's influence in Ukraine. And she felt that that was the foreign policy that she understood was coming from the White House, but yet there appeared to be a parallel foreign policy that was happening elsewhere. And she didn't agree with that parallel foreign policy, and I guess she let it be known. But it appeared as if they wanted her out because she did not uh, agree with the direction that they wanted to go, particularly in the possibility of investigating uh, the president's political rivals. Uh, all those things that she did not appear to be feel were in the purview of what she wanted to do for foreign policy as the U.S. ambassador to Ukraine. So she did not play ball. Does it seem like there was anything other than that investigation of Burisma, which now we hear equals Biden, right? At all, anything else to the change in foreign policy, that, or does it just come down to that that you've taken out of these hearings? Well, it appears to come down to that. It appears that, um, but again, the president makes a lots of remarks, and you don't know exactly some of the meanings. That uh, you know, she's bad news, um, and. Uh, she's got troubles. She's going to go through some things. Yes, right. And everywhere she's been, there have been problems. And so maybe he was setting the stage that she was not a very capable uh, foreign service officer and was not a, quote, good ambassador. So I think he was setting the stage. But it appears as if she was one of the more uh, competent, capable uh, career foreign service officers and, uh, and ambassadors. And so there was nothing, it appears, to be... Uh, talking about her competence. She was very qualified and a very competent uh, ambassador. So it appears from listening to this, there was only one reason. She was not uh, uh, supportive of this back-channel foreign policy. Now, during your time as an ambassador, did you travel with any amigos? <laughs> did I travel with any amigos? This came from Gordon Sondland when he was talking about uh, uh, Secretary Energy and... and uh, Rick Perry. Rick, yes. And Kurt Volker. Thank you. And they were the three amigos. And uh, it appears as if these were the political... Uh, these were appointees and friends of the, our president. And they were supportive of uh, Giuliani and what he was trying to do uh, in terms of... Uh, uh, getting the Ukrainian government to investigate uh, Hunter Biden and his role on Burisma, the corporation, and seeing if there was any corruption on the part of the Bidens in Ukraine. So that was the um, uh, back channel. And also uh, to talk about investigating Ukraine's involvement in the uh, 2016 election. And it appears as if this was, a, this was the thought that it wasn't Russia, it was Ukraine. So those were the two objectives that appeared from this back channel. And these three amigos were involved in seeing if they could move that agenda forward. I did not have any such issues in South Africa. It, it, the timing I can't recall exactly. Did Perry announce that he'd be leaving his post just before this Ukrainian story broke? It's a little bit after. Or a little bit after. A little bit after. And there was a contract that a buddy of his took out with him from it, Ukraine, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, it appeared as if he was, uh, uh, I guess, chosen by the Trump administration to go to the inauguration of uh, President Zelensky. And he went uh, and he had uh, several things in his back pocket. And one of the things he had, and this is Secretary uh, Rick Perry, uh, he had some of his buddies' names that he wanted uh, the uh, new administration to know about, and they had they were experts quote in energy, and uh, one of them uh, was introduced. Uh, I think he gave several names, and one of them it appears uh, did have a follow through uh, and got a very lucrative contract, uh, energy contract with the government of Ukraine. So that uh, shortly thereafter it appears as if the secretary decided that he would step down and resign, and I don't know what the reasons were. Now, Rudy Giuliani back in Ukraine recently, right after. <laughs> How, how surprising was that? Well, a lot of these things you just don't quite, uh, I don't at least, really understand. It's really kind of in-your-face politics that Trump plays. And it is very, very, um, you know, you can, you can use whatever labels you want, but he has a pattern. And some may call it a pattern of what, the way bullies operate. Uh, or some may be a lot more polite and say these are sort of aggressive modalities that he uses. But it's in your face. And the same thing happened yesterday when the articles of impeachment were, were uh, announced uh, by the House Democrats. 
uh, he entertained the foreign minister, uh, Minister Lavrov, in the White House, and he took pictures. So right at that time, where we're always when we're talking about the articles of impeachment, which involves in many ways Russia and Russia's meddling in our uh, 2016 election, and then the abuse of power and the obstruction of uh, of Congress and all those things under the articles, at that very moment he just puts into your face. Um, a picture smiling with the foreign minister of Russia. And then, as you mentioned, Giuliani, right after the, uh, the same time that the articles were forthcoming of impeachment, he was in uh, Ukraine still talking about asking them to investigate uh, the 2016 issue and, and Hunter Biden and the Biden. So it's in your face. And um, I don't know what that really means. I don't quite understand it. Do you think the insurance Rudy was referring to when asked if he thought the president would throw him under the bus was recorded phone calls or conversations? I would I would interpret that to mean that he has something that he could come back at which would ensure that maybe he would protect himself or ensure against going to jail or ensure against whatever the president might come forth if he plans to throw him under the bus. Uh, I don't know what insurance means. I don't know what he has. Uh, Only he knows, and the president probably is surmising. But it could be recordings. uh, It could be uh, letters. It could be emails. Or, uh, you know, who knows? Any number of things. I wasn't sure if we'd see Rudy take up residence in Ukraine, frankly. (laughs) We don't know. We don't have any clue. But all I know, it's in your face, and it is very brazen in my judgment, and uh, we'll see how that all plays out. Now, we also heard testimony from the NSA Director for Europe and Russia, Dr. Fiona Hill. Now, are any of these people people you had come across, you know, or worked with along the way during your years in foreign service? No, I, my career in foreign service was not very long. Uh, I was uh, nominated in in uh, 99 uh, for the U.S. ambassador and then confirmed toward the end of that year and served a year and a half. And then when the Bush administration came in shortly thereafter, I came home as a political appointee. So you can figure 99 to 2001, just a little over two years or so, uh, that I was uh, in foreign service. Although uh, living in Washington and having friends in foreign service, um, I kept up uh, generally with uh, uh, foreign service uh, issues and uh, interests. Um, but no, I um, uh, I wasn't in long enough uh, to to uh, to really answer that question. Well, Doctor Hill gave some pretty gripping testimony. Yes, and from that perspective, I'm sure you worked with people who were like a counterpart. Yes, uh, to to Doctor Fiona Hill, and um, and so they those folks are operating there in between if I understand this correctly, because it gets a little bit complicated, Mm -hmm. sort of in between the president and the foreign service workers? Well, let me see if I can remember exactly. I think Dr. Fiona Hill uh, was a part of the National Security Council, I think. And if that's the case, the National Security Council is a group that's very close to the president and to the secretary of state. And they're involved in security issues, national security issues, and that always relates and could relate to foreign policy. So the National Security Council uh, and National Security Advisors to the President are very, very important. And they're much, very, they are career for the most part. And I think uh, Dr. Fiona Hill uh, was a career person uh, dealing with national security. And, and, and she, in fact was uh, the expert, <laughs> the, the nation's expert on Russia. Absolutely. Who testified to the idea or the, the theory, uh, some would call it a conspiracy theory, that CrowdStrike and Ukraine were the uh, bigger players in the 2016 election. And so that was what really, you know, her testimony started off with kind of debunking uh, that theory. Yeah, her testimony was very, very clear and very, very forceful. She said not only was she debunking it, she was saying that that is the Russian propaganda. And, and she said that uh, persons who espouse it really should stop because it is a disservice to, to our country because it is Russia propaganda. Uh, and uh, so she was very clear on this point that that theory that uh, Ukraine was involved uh, was a theory that uh, Russians were putting forth. Any predictions as to what we might hear in the Senate trial and how it'll all work out? Well, 
Uh, no, I have no predictions. Uh, I, I do f- want to follow this one closely. I didn't follow the Clinton impeachment uh, that closely uh, as to the procedures. But from what I'm understanding, as people are going back to looking at the history, uh, that uh, the Democrats and the Republicans at that time under the Clinton impeachment came close, it came together to, to agree and negotiate the process. And now um, Senator Schumer and uh, Senator McConnell will get together to come to some determination of the process. Now, the process is going to be clear, uh, uh, be very critical uh, as to how this goes, uh, what, how, how uh, motions would handle, rules uh, would be promulgated. The Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, this is set out in the Constitution, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court presides over the trial. But I think the rules... Uh, will be decided by the senators themselves. So I'm not so sure there's a lot of power uh, on the part of the chief justice. Uh, He will have to deal with the rules that would have been negotiated. So I don't have any predictions. We'll have to see what the rules are. But it's not like a criminal federal trial. It's not, it's not like that at all. They, they will develop the rules and determine the witnesses and determine the process. So the calls for due process and somehow the president is being denied due process along the way. Well, it's just not that kind of thing. It's not there. He hasn't been denied due process at all. Uh, he hasn't been charged with a crime. No, but even before that time, as the hearings have been going on, Republicans have been involved in all of the hearings, even those that are uh, that are uh, behind closed doors. Uh, both Republicans and Democrats are involved in those. Uh, and then they've asked the president to come forth as these uh, articles have been uh, promulgated and issued, uh, asked to come forth and asked his lawyers to come forth, and they have denied and refused. They really want one thing, right? They want the Senate trial and hopefully on party lines to get him exonerated. And, and I was kind of referring to, in the previous to that, the whistleblower. Well, I don't know where they want to go with the whistleblower except to if they got the identity to try to dis- discredit the whistleblower. Uh, but the whole whistleblower act is, uh, comes with many protections. And so far, I think that whistleblower has been protected and hopefully will continue to be protected. All right. It's a lot to cover. A lot to cover and a lot to think about. <laughs> and I did but not also, go to law school <laughs> or school for foreign service. But also so important to our country. So important because these are really very, very important times and very critical times for our democracy. I mean, impeachment is no small matter. And uh, if those articles will be voted on, uh, I understand, in the next day or two, and then go before the full House uh, in next week. And then if it goes along party lines, that's one thing and gets approved. But suppose there will be several Republicans that say they would vote for those articles. We'll see in the House. But then it shifts to the Senate. And it becomes not, not only just politics, but in my judgment, it becomes conscience, duty, obligations. And it should be above politics. If, they can be shown, if it can be shown that the President of the United States did abuse his power, and if it could be shown that he did obstruct uh, Congress, uh, and in your judgment, is this enough that he should be removed? That's going to be the question. Were you surprised that Democrats didn't include any of the outlined potential cases of obstruction of justice, 10 or 11 of them in the Mueller report? Uh, I was watching that one closely, and I must tell you I've gone back and forth. And again, as a, as a lawyer, uh, I'm not a practicing lawyer, but I certainly uh, have a sense of, of the legal issues. And I, I went back and forth, and I at one point felt maybe those uh, one or two or more of those issues that Mueller had put in his report uh, which he said was evidence of obstruction of uh, justice, uh, could be used as part of the articles. Uh, uh, but I'm, I'm inclined to think um, that from the political standpoint, and this, will, and it, this is political uh, as it gets to the trial in the Senate without question, um, I think it becomes one of getting the public to understand And once you get the public to understand our republic and our democratic uh, government, these are our representatives. And if we believe we make calls to our senators with our opinions, and if we have been moved that uh, these articles uh, are really getting at the truth and that we as citizens support these articles and the president should be removed, we may push our senators to vote yes to convict. 
Um, so if you make it simple, you make it understandable, you don't put in the Kenshit sink as to all the things that uh, could be put into these articles, you paint this picture that it could be understood. I think that's the reason that they did it. Uh, looking at the politics of it, looking at public opinion, and making it understandable. So there's one article that deals with uh, the abuse uh, of power, and the second article dealing with obstruction of Congress. And these, I must say, have not been contradicted. The, the picture that has been laid factually about the president's abuse, holding hostage the leverage of money and, a, and an Oval Office visit to get what he wants uh, to impact his 2020 reelection has not been contradicted. And in the second article, it's very clear. The president has not allowed any of the executive officers to testify and has not put forth any documents uh, to the committees. So is that obstruction? We'll see. Will we see any of those key players in the Senate trial, do you think? Well, that would depend. Say, say that a Republican becomes moved here. Uh, not a Democrat, a Republican. It says, you know, I want to hear from one or two persons. I want to hear from Don McGahn. And let's have him as a witness. Unlikely, but it could happen. Uh, and if you get direct, let's hear from Mitch Mulvaney, the acting uh, get over chief it of guy. staff. Yes, let's hear. <laughs> that told us. Under oath, let's hear him, what he has to say. If someone says, and it have to be a Republican because that they control the rules here and they have the numbers, but it could happen. We'll see. We will. Going back to your decision to become an ambassador, what, what, what made you want to do that, and why South Africa? My, not my decision at all. Uh, let's be clear. Um, that a political appointee, um, I don't know whether Gordon Sondland, for example, decided when he gave money that he had discussions with the Trump administration or with the president himself, uh, I'd like to be an ambassador and I'd like to do X or Y. That sometimes happened. I, that did not happen in my case. I had been a longtime worker in, in democratic politics, uh, supporting many persons who ran for office uh, over the years. Uh, I'd been very active in local democratic politics, uh, and I had uh, given money uh, to democratic uh, politicians and, and others. Uh, so I'd been active in the process, uh, but I did not have any discussions with uh, uh, the White House. Uh, in fact, when I got the call uh, here in New Mexico, the call came from Vice President Gore, and I was completely surprised. And we were moving from one house to another here in Las Cruces, and we had bags and boxes all around. And my wife, the phone rings, and Gail answers the phone, and she puts, say, hands the phone to me. She says, Vice President. And so I got the phone, and I said, Mr. Vice President, what I owe this honor. And his voice became very official, and he says, Dell, I'm calling on behalf of President Clinton. And the president would like to nominate you as the next uh, United States ambassador to the Republic of South Africa. And I said, what did you say, Mr. Vice President? I had no idea I was being No considered. clue it was coming. I had no idea I was on a list. And so, no, I did not know. And uh, I had no, no foreknowledge. And so, again, um, the way it generally works, as I said, I don't know how it worked in Garden Silence case. But the, generally the way it works um, that if you have done a good job as a career foreign service officer, your name gets on a list uh, coming from the Secretary of State to the President. And then if you work for a party, give money to a party and been active in politics, your name gets on a list uh, from the Secretary of State over to the President. And the President looks at these career foreign service officers and the President looks at these political appointees and he can make the decisions. And if he says, okay, I've had discussions with a good friend and he's, he's, like the, he, he's the one I want to go to, New Me to, to, to Mexico as the ambassador uh, and I have a career foreign service officer there, I'll work with the Secretary of State, move that career foreign service officer to another location and put my friend in as the ambassador to, to the country of Mexico. But anyway, it, it, it's up to the president. So 
Did you keep unpacking your boxes at that point? <laughs> it did change our lives. Let me I tell you. I imagine that was quite a conversation it, it, it after really the one with the vice president. <laughs> exactly. No, we went ahead. Uh, we had already bought the house in the same neighborhood. So we went ahead and moved and uh, uh, here in Las Cruces. And uh, it took 11 months to get confirmed. Uh, mm. All the politics, uh, they were coming at President Clinton about his appointees, not only for ambassadorships, but for judgeships and for other agency heads and so on. And in my case, um, uh, it was taking some time and uh, to get a hearing uh, on my nomination. And I kept going back and forth to Washington and calling State Department. And what I found out, because uh, I didn't get the formal nomination until after six months from the call from Vice President Gore. Six months. Hmm. And what happened was I finally found out that the president had been putting forth nominations, but he had not... He, sometimes he had done that before the full background checks had been completed. So he was not going to put forth any other new nominations until all background checks had been completed. So that took them six months, uh, and then my background checks were completed, uh, and then I got the formal nomination. But still, it took several months before I had the hearing before the Subcommittee on Foreign Affairs of the, uh, of the, uh, of the U.S. Senate. Now, did your time in Africa with the Peace Corps uh, help you make the decision on South Africa or, you know, had you, did you have a certain level of excitement or fear or uh, what, ab anxiety about going there? No, uh, let me tell you, I, I again, I had no um, choice. Uh, the, the nomination came from the White House saying that we'd like to nominate you uh, as U.S. ambassador to South Africa. So I had no choice of any other place. Uh, I was honored uh, beyond measure uh, to be nominated for an ambassadorship. It's a very high honor. And certainly to the Republic of South Africa because of all of the things that uh, that country had uh, endured, uh, particularly under apartheid, uh, which was, you know, a segregation uh, by race and class. Uh, and um, Mandela, uh, who had been, along with many other freedom fighters, uh, active uh, in an anti-apartheid issues. And Mandela becoming the first uh, uh, elected president uh, under free elections uh, 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 under the new government. And so it, it was a wonderful time. So he was finishing up his five-year term and decided not to run again uh, as president of South Africa. And so I came in in 99, just as he had stepped down uh, f uh, for his one term. And his successor, Thabo Mbeki, who was also a freedom fighter, uh, was deputy president, and he ran and was elected, and he became the president to succeed uh, uh, President uh, Mandela. And I must say that the process goes that you not only have to be nominated and confirmed by the United States Senate, you have to be accepted by the president of the country that you're going to serve. That, that country has to say yay or nay. And in my case, they wanted President Mandela to say yes and Thabo Mbeki because Mandela had just stepped down. So I was doubly approved uh, <laughs> that both uh, President Mbeki and President Mandela signed off. And then I got confirmed by the U.S. Senate uh, in November 1999, and we assumed the post in uh, December 99. And to answer your question about the Peace Corps, that, that was helpful to have had that experience even though that was in West Africa and East Africa, uh, to have some global experience, some African experience um, from a Peace Corps point of view uh, was very important. And one of the first duties that I had uh, there in South Africa uh, was to swear in a group of uh, new Peace Corps volunteers to South Africa, which was a great honor. But So that background was very helpful. Once you got there, what did you observe about what was lingering from that history of apartheid? A very, very good question. Um, you might imagine, I must say, that being there, there were no outward signs of uh, discrimination and segregation. There were no signs there that uh, uh, for blacks only or for whites only, uh, uh, nothing of that sort. Uh, but obviously, um, there were these um, tensions uh, left over from those years of an apartheid system. And um, I got to know some of this uh, firsthand uh, by listening and visiting various parts of South Africa. 
my wife and I wanted to uh, assume this responsibility as a team, although she certainly was not confirmed and she didn't have top secret uh, clearance as I did. But anything short of uh, classified material, uh, my wife and I participated in projects together. She was very active with helping on education projects and empowering women in economic development, and I was involved in doing some of those same issues uh, from the embassy side. So any event, um, those vestiges were still there. Uh, those tensions were still there. Uh, you could see the hierarchy of... Uh, of people uh, in relationship by, uh, based on race. In other words, um, that system, that old system, uh, the minority whites were in power and on top, and you had the Indians from India sort of underneath, and then you had um, coloreds of uh, the third level, and that's basically a mixed race of people. Uh, and then you had the predominant race, the black South Africans, on the bottom rung. And so you could see that interplay in business and in social gatherings. You could still see that interplay between whites and uh, uh, Indians, uh, coloreds, and black South Africans. Um, and that's why the um, institution of the uh, Truth and Reconciliation Commission uh, that uh, uh, Archbishop Desmond Tutu chaired and many others supported, was so valuable, whereby you could come and talk about race. You could talk about apartheid. You could talk about those issues. And if you were a victim, you could talk about it. Or if you were uh, a perpetrator, you could talk about it. And you could ask for forgiveness. And I think those are lessons that we could learn in America because we had a segregated system based by race. I was going to ask you if, it, uh, if there yes. was anything about it that reminded you oh, yes. of a time growing up in Absolutely. Kansas. It certainly did. And, and for, for me, uh, particularly growing up in a segregated community in Kansas City, Kansas, and going to all-black schools, um, I, I do remember some of the signs. I do remember segregated lunch counters uh, in Kansas City, Kansas. I do remember the fact that we couldn't go to the white movie theaters and we had our own, quote, black movie theaters in Kansas City, Kansas. I was old enough uh, to experience that. Uh, so, yes, coming to a, a system that uh, legally that was gone, uh, and supposedly in our country it's gone, but those tensions remain. But to have an outlet and a dialogue and I think today that we find that these issues surface, and that's because we haven't talked about it. We don't talk about it in school. We don't talk about it in church. We don't talk about it in our communities. We just throw this issue sort of under the rug of our history of enslavement in this country and slavery in this country. Uh, we just don't talk about it. And I would think that if we did, we'd have a greater understanding of our history uh, as a people in this country. What was your foreign policy goal or goals during your time there? That's a very, another very good question. Um, let, me, let me give you a little preface on that. Um, when I interviewed uh, Ambassador Huddleston, we reminisced because she was going to Cuba as head of the uh, chief of the interest section there, and I was headed off to South Africa. And we both were a part of the ambassadorial school. And that's a two-week course uh, in Washington for ambassadorial nominees. Uh, none of us were confirmed at that time, but we were all nominated. And um, that's a course uh, where they try to help you get ready for an ambassadorship. And it's chaired by a career ambassador and a political appointee, so you could get both sides. And they take us through administration. They take us to uh, public relations. They take us through uh, various uh, other kinds of issues of what it's like to be an ambassador and so on. And... They, and they really asked us very early on, the chair of the course, uh, the co-chairs, to develop a mission for the country in which you're going to serve. Just give it thought. What would be your mission as the chief of mission for your country? And in my case, it was South Africa. So I gave that thought, and Gail and I both gave a thought. And uh, to answer your question, we did have a mission. And our mission was to get, in, get the U.S. Embassy involved in issues of education, because we felt that that was so important to bring South Africa uh, up in terms of development. And two, uh, health issues. HIV and AIDS was uh, really uh, becoming quite an issue uh, in South Africa and other parts of Africa. And uh, third was economic development. Uh, 
Uh, could we bring U.S. foreign investment uh, into the country to help them progress? And uh, I was thinking about a fourth uh, before we left, uh, but we didn't have time to really move it forward, and that was arts and culture and entertainment. I mean, they had such a rich culture of music and dance mm -hmm. and art uh, that I wanted to uh, have that kind of mutual exchange uh, between America and South Africa. But those three, health, education, and economic development, was my mission. And we began to work with the agencies, United States Agency for International Development, education agencies, uh, uh, agricultural agencies. Uh, we helped uh, develop uh, that mission uh, while we were there. I'm sure you brought a lot back with you. Oh yes, from South Africa. What would what would that be? What really what really lives inside you today from that experience? It's the people, uh, just the people of South Africa. Um, uh, the experiences that we had, the people just stand out. And just one in particular was the, uh, uh, my embassy driver. Uh, I was not allowed to drive a car for a year and a half. I mean, it just for security reasons. Uh, uh, Gail had a car, and she could drive, but I couldn't. And uh, I was chauffeured around uh, for security reasons. And I had a driver, uh, Edison Musa, uh, and uh, Edison uh, had driven for at least 10 uh, U.S. Uh, ambassadors. Mm -hmm. And he, he had such a rich history, not only about America, but about South Africa. Uh, he was um, fluent in about 10 languages. Um, so we could travel throughout the country and outside the country to Swaziland, Botswana, Lesotho, um, and Edison could speak those languages. And I had, when I got into the car in the mornings, I could hear the stories that he experienced and others experienced about apartheid. So I had a history lesson every day. Um, he, was, uh, he was just a, a gentleman. Uh, he related to our family. And when my grandkids came, he embraced uh, my, grand, my grandsons. Uh, he was just a, a marvelous human being. So I take, um, I met Ambassador, I met um, Archbishop Tutu um, and Mrs. Tutu um, and I, just a number of people. It's the people that, uh, that are sort of still in my heart uh, about South Africa. Did you get a chance to spend any any time with Mandela himself? Oh, yes. And that's a giant of a person, without question. Uh, I had business with him over time. Uh, I called on him when I first got there. I made a call on him as I was leaving. And on my farewell call, I had uh, worked through his office to ask if he would sign uh, four copies for my four sons and their family of his book, A Long Walk to Freedom. And, and he did that so graciously. He endorsed uh, one to each of my uh, uh, children and their families, uh, and he wanted to know about them. And as he was signing the books, a very, very gracious man. And we talked issues about Africa, and we talked about issues related to the U.S., and I had the same kind of experiences with Tabo and Becky. So I learned a lot and gained so much from listening and learning about uh, South Africa and hopefully developed a strong bilateral bound between uh, U.S. and South Africa that's continuing today. Another thing you brought back with you is a memory of some of the sayings that you would see uh, w while moving about. Well, that was, that was Nigeria. Um, South Africa, there were lots of things that, uh, that caught our attention. Uh, but I think the one you have reference to was a, a West African proverb, uh, no condition is permanent. And that's a title of my second book. And uh, in Nigeria, and I, I'm sure I haven't been back in 50 years, but uh, the transportation vehicles called lorries, uh, L-O-R-R-I-E-S, uh, they have these famous West African proverbs on the side of the lorries. And um, uh, this one uh, I remembered and it stuck with me, no condition is permanent. And when you're very high, uh, things are going well, just keep in mind that things could go the other way. And when you're down and maybe depressed, think that you know things could change. So life is all about change. And so my second book, uh, No Condition is Permanent, uh, talks about my life experiences uh, uh, and hopefully gives some people a blueprint of uh, how they might succeed or how they might uh, deal with change. What was your first book about? <laughs> the first book was about it all begins with self, uh, how to discover your passion, how to connect with people, and how to succeed in life. And um, I 
been married to Gail for a number of years, and we have four adult sons and 11 grandchildren, and my four sons had been encouraging me to, to write a book, uh, and my son Brian particularly uh, mentioned, because uh, he helped me write the second book, but, but he kept saying, the first book, Dad, ought to be about a how-to. And I must say that all my sons are very successful entrepreneurs, and I'm a, uh, I've not been an entrepreneur, but they wanted me to put down uh, in a very succinct way, um, it's only 77 pages, about how to do things uh, using my life experience as a, as, as a guide. Not that the way I did it is the only way to do it, but it's a way that might lend uh, some guidance to you. One thing I see throughout uh, the course of this, what is going to be a very short read, <laughs> good, right? Good. Relationships, mentorship, partnership, and the value of other people that bring uh, that that you bring into your life. When did you discover the, that the importance of that? I discovered that uh, very early on, even in high school, um, that I had close relationships that still continue to this day. Um, and uh, it went through college and law school. I found a life partner uh, with Gail when we started dating at University of Kansas, and we married in 1960, and she's been a life partner all these years. Uh, And then family. I had a very strong family unit. I'm an only child. Uh, My mother was a domestic um, high school education. Uh, My father had uh, 11th grade education, but he was a railroad porter on the Santa Fe Railroad and a very, very good job and uh, believed in hard work. And uh, uh, I got those kinds of ethics and uh, from from my family. So I, I early on, uh, family relationships uh, uh, were also very important. And then when I got into the business world uh, and in government service, mentors and friends, and I put that in my book a lot, Uh, helped me uh, move from one place to the next and supported me in those efforts. And you had a lot more to tell. So then the second book came, right? (laughs) Exactly right. (laughs) I forgot that and that and that. So the second book is a lot more detailed in terms of how those mentors impacted my life and uh, relationships and so forth. I love the titles of your chapters. Breaking the news. Right. What news? I had to go back and look and see which one that was. Is that early on? Is that early on in the book? Yes, it is. Page yeah. 38. Good. Re- read me the first Breaking part. Breaking the news. In early May of 1959, Gail conversed with her father by phone in Texas. Oh. I think I know. Yeah. She explained to her dad she was in love. <laughs> Breaking the news was that I had to ask her father for her hand in marriage, and uh, I did. I thought that was old hat. I didn't think you had to do that anymore. Um, I was sadly mistaken. Uh, Mrs. Jones pulled me aside and said, "Look, uh, I think he's waiting. Everyone has been talking all around him." And he said to her, "He says no one's talked to me yet." Mm. Uh, so I had to ask for Gail's hand in marriage. Did you have to put some serious thought into that? Was it scary for you? Oh, I was very nervous. <laughs> a long conversation. <laughs> Later on, you have a very scary moment in Gulu, Uganda. Uh-huh. That one I do remember quite often, uh, quite off the bat. Um, I was Peace Corps director uh, in uh, Uganda, and Gulu um, was a, a city uh, in the northern part, and I might add was the home of Idi Amin, uh, who uh, was head of the army when I was there. And after I left in 19... Um, uh, 70, 69, when we came back home, uh, he took over that country and had a terrible reign of power over that country uh, for seven, eight years, which was awful. Uh, but he was head of the army. But I went to Gulu on a Peace Corps mission, and we had volunteers around that area. And I was with um, a Peace Corps staffer, and we both were in uh, a vehicle, and it was a Jeep. And we were on a, a dirt road, and um, he was driving, and I was a passenger side. And somehow he lost control, and uh, we were kind of overturned, and I was thrown out uh, and fell on my arm. Uh, but no other, no other injury, although the arm was uh, badly uh, damaged. And I ended up in a, a, a grade C hospital in Gulu. 
and grade C hospitals are where there's no catered service uh, uh, that your family takes care of you and so the conditions there were not optimal and so the Peace Corps doctor was very upset uh, that uh, I was in that hospital and immediately got me out of there and back to the capital city uh, where I got excellent treatment uh, for my arm but that was uh, that was the gulo could say you're lucky that condition didn't become permanent (laughs) exactly exactly indeed right and moving on to, I didn't see this one coming. I opened to page 134 and see the quote that you start this chapter with. Let us now set forth one of the fundamental truths about marriage. The wife is in charge. <laughs> and this is about how you got to Las Cruces. Right. You're pretty good. You're pretty good. Reflecting. Yes, I did not see that coming. Uh, we had purchased a house here. Uh, I came here uh, at KRWG, as a matter of fact. There was a development officer here who invited me here. I was president of National Public Radio in Washington, and she invited me here for a fundraiser for KRWG in 1996. And I came here by myself and uh, uh, had a fundraiser here. Um, uh, I toured the campus, toured the station, and the next day I was gone. And Gail said, you know, New Mexico always spoke to me. I'd love to go back. I I never got to Las Cruces. She said, I've been to Santa Fe and Albuquerque, and how was Las Cruces? And I said, I really didn't see it. So she said, let's go back. So we came back and fell in love with Las Cruces, and we happened to buy a house in the one week that we were here. Uh, We bought a home, and that became a second home for uh, a couple years. Well, after about the first year when I wrote the title of this book, uh, I didn't see this coming. Uh, Gail said to me, um, uh, honey, uh, I love it here, and uh, I'd like to spend January, February, and March here. And I said, what? We have a house in Maryland, and I'm working still. And I'm a slow learner. It took me a while to say, Gail is saying, let's get out of Washington. Let's get out of this rat race. Uh, Let's resettle. And and so I finally, I said, okay. I I finally got the message, and it took me a year or so to leave. I left NPR. I didn't have a full-time job, and we resettled here. And Las Cruces, New Mexico. And now you have a world-famous <laughs> podcast. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm so excited about it. Uh, and I must say, right off the bat, thanks to you and to Fred Martino and to Adrian Velarde uh, and all the KRWG who have allowed me uh, to do my podcast here. Uh, and KC is my operations person and helps me with the podcast. And I do my interviews here, left, right, forward. And I'm so pleased. And and. and the thing that uh, KRDBG has asked me in return is that I share my content, and I <laughs> gladly will share my content. And Fred and KC and others uh, have have uh, had my podcast as specials on KRWG. And so I have this relationship with uh, the station here, and I'm, I'm very, very thankful. And the podcasts are growing, and hopefully they're making some impact. Well, I was just uh, really interested after watching the inquiry hearings myself and watching these ambassadors testify as to what your perspective on that issue would be. But, of course, you have so much more to tell. Thank you for spending some time with us in the other seat today. Well, thank you so much, and I appreciate you're asking me because I am just very proud of those Foreign Service officers. I'm very proud that they're speaking up, not on a partisan fashion. They're speaking up to facts. They're speaking up on things that they did not feel were appropriate and maybe even bartered on illegality. And they had the courage to come forward. And um, they didn't get support from the Secretary of State, uh, and that's unfortunate, uh, but they spoke up anyway. And I'm just proud of the Foreign Service officers that did that. And you can read those books. I imagine you're, they're available somewhere for purchase. It all begins with self and no condition is permanent. Yes, you can go to my website, left, right, forward, uh, podcast.com, and you can purchase those books. It all begins with self and no condition is permanent. Uh, you can get those from my website. Thank you so much for the plug. Well done. <laughs> Thank you. Well done. <laughs> You have been listening to the Left Right Forward Show, where our mission is to inspire, educate, and inform. Thanks for listening.